Hello. This week I have another special treat for you. You're going to hear an interview that I did on Instagram Live with Dr. Liza Aguiar. Liza is a pediatric urologist, and when we asked you to submit questions for her, you sent us hundreds. In this conversation, we were able to dive deep into some of your questions about circumcisions, daytime potty training, nighttime potty training, and bedwetting, and her real thoughts about Miralax. Hope you enjoy. Ah, you got in. Yay. Yay. Hello. Okay. So I was, I was saying, uh, we're going to talk about, um, pediatric urology. We're going to record this. I want to start. I think people who are watching this probably know who I am, or at least some of them. Um, but I would love you to introduce you yourself and tell us, uh, who you are. Sure. Um, I'm Liza Aguiar. I am a pediatric urologist. So I specialize in kidneys, bladders, like the urinary system, and also um, genitals as well. And um, I'm a mom. I like the way you said that. It's like, and I have a side project. I have a side project in genitals. (laughs) Yes. Penises. Um, So I am a mom of a three-year-old boy. Um, And that's me. Awesome. And you're my neighbor. I mean, that's not how we know. And I'm your neighbor. Yes. But it turns out you're my neighbor. So that's, it's a good street. It's a good street. Um, Okay. So let's start. We're going to start by talking. um, We have sort of like three buckets of questions. Um, The first bucket is penises. The second bucket is uh, sort of daytime potty training, holding pee. And the third is nighttime. So we're going to start with, um, with penises. And I would say the, there's a set of questions about circumcision that people ask all the time and people sent in a, a bunch of them. And I think the, the first one I want to start with is just like, can you talk about this procedure? And like, is it painful? Which I think is sort of almost where everybody starts. Like what happens and how should I think about it? Sure. So by far, the majority of circumcisions happen a few days after life within the, within the first few days. And what we know about pain and circumcision is that, you know, boys do feel pain, even as newborns, the nervous system is, you know, relatively developed. And we know based on like, more objective data, like their heart rates go up, they cry. So yes, there's some pain associated with it, but most kids tolerate it very well. And, um, you know, by the day after they're, you know, pretty much um, behaving somewhat normally. And most um, OBs and pediatricians who do newborn circumcisions offer some local anesthesia. So some like lidocaine or numbing cream to make it less painful. So um, it's in general, a pretty low risk procedure. Uh, We talk about risks of like bleeding and infection, but serious injury to the penis is, is very rare. And um, what happens is that most newborn circumcisions, uh, there's like a little bit of a, a, like a clamp that goes over the tip of the penis and the foreskin gets clamped off and then the skin just heals. So there's no stitches in a newborn circumcision. Um, and typically like no bandage is necessary, just a lot of Vaseline or anti ointment and uh, routine like diaper care. So, so when you, people ask, I guess one, one question people often come with is like, what is the reason to do this? Like, like, okay. So, you know, there's a sort of like, what are the risks and then what are, what, why would, what are the reasons to do this other than, you know, there's sort of cultural, like for which this is sort of an important part of your cultural traditions, but other than that, 
what are the reasons? So I get asked that question a lot. Like, are there any medical benefits to a circumcision? And I'll add a little bit of context to that. So um, because I get asked specifically about this a lot. So in 2012, the American Academy of Pediatrics came out with this policy statement uh, about circumcision. And it said that the benefits of circumcision outweigh the risks. And the specific benefits that they mentioned were um, reducing the risk of three things, urinary tract infection, penile cancer, and transmission of some sexually transmitted diseases, including HIV. So like, whoa, that's big. Um, And of course, as you can anticipate, a lot of phone calls to pediatric urologists uh, saying, should I circumcise my son because of this? And there were a lot of, you know, there's a lot of anxiety and worry. And I don't think that was their intention, but the headlines obviously, (laughs) um, you know, promote that. So when I talk to parents, I address all three. So reducing the risk of urinary tract infection, that is a benefit for the first year of life. So after the age of one, that's no longer, um, you know, a benefit. Uh, And the risk of a urinary tract infection in boys is extremely low at baseline. So about 1% of boys get uh, urinary tract infections. Um, So I don't use that as a medical reason to recommend circumcision unless my patient has other congenital abnormalities or medical conditions that would put them at increased risk of a urinary tract infection. So penile cancer. Um, cancer is a scary word, and uh, but the risk of penile cancer is extremely low. Like about one in 100,000 men get diagnosed with penile cancer every year. And it's more associated with the inability to retract your foreskin as an adult and hygiene. So not a medical um, reason to for me that I would use to, to recommend circumcision. And then transmission of sexually transmitted diseases. A lot of this data comes from, you know, countries where HIV is much more, um, you know, of an issue and access to care and access to condoms um, is not, a, you know, is a problem. So in the United States where, you know, access to appropriate protection um, is less of an issue. It's just really not applicable. So I would never circumcise a boy and say, you know, um, you can have unprotected sex. That's not, that would not be okay. All right. So I want to get to like a bottom line question about the circumcision, which is, it sounds like basically your sort of like take on this is that there are not a lot of like positive reasons to do this. Is that right? Yeah. So I just, I leave it up to the parents. I say it's a personal decision. It sometimes is a cultural one, a religious one. And if, you know, you prefer your kid's penis to appear circumcised, that's okay. Um, I'm happy to do it. And if not, then that's okay too. So um, I leave it up to them. Yeah. Yeah. This, it's interesting because I, it's one of the things I talk about in Crib Sheet as an example of something where like maybe there are some small costs, maybe there are some small benefits and it's like... And, and it's also so personal, like people sort of say on the internet, like you should do this, you should not do it. But like the lady on the internet, like doesn't know what your son's penis should look like. Like it's not really any of her. It's not Some a people lot feel business. very, like there, some people feel very, very, very strongly. Absolutely. One way or the other. Yeah. 
Um, so one thing to ask is, you know, it actually, when, I think when I was a kid, circumcision was like extreme, like we were like way above half, but now I think we're, we're down more like 50, 50% in the U.S. Yeah. About 60% about- of kids are, are boys are circumcised and 40% are. So, and it kind of varies state to state. If you do not circumcise, is there a, are there hygiene things you should be aware of with the foreskin? Yeah. So a newborn uncircumcised penis, um, the foreskin is covering the tip of the penis and it's tight. So that's called phimosis. And that is very normal during childhood. And with growth of the penis and erections, like, yes, babies get erections, um, that tightness loosens up and eventually kids are able to retract fully. The timing of that varies. So sometimes kids are able to retract fully by age two, and then other times it takes up until like the preteen years. Um, and it is never okay to forcefully retract the foreskin. So your pediatrician, for example, you should not, um, you know, pull the foreskin back forcefully, causing tears in the skin or, um, you know, bleeding or discomfort. That's not necessary. Uh, it is okay to like manipulate the foreskin and pull it back gently and see how far it goes back over time. And eventually you'll notice that the adhesions underneath, so the stickiness of the skin to the tip of the penis, um, become less and you can see more of the um, tip of the penis called the glands. And then as it's, you know, as you're able to retract more and more, then it's, you know, appropriate to retract and clean underneath when the foreskin naturally relaxes. And at an age appropriate time, like during potty training or a little bit after, then, you know, teaching kids, you know, teaching boys to, to sort of pull back as far as they can comfortably to pee and to wash underneath is, is part of, you know, part of routine hygiene for an uncircumcised boy. Okay. All right. So we did the penis. I'm sure there's many other questions about the penis, but, uh, but we're going to move on to the sort of set of questions people had about daytime potty training. Um, and so, so what, like one version of this, one thing people ask is just like, my kids holding their pee all the time. How many times do they have to pee? Are they going to be sick if they never pee? What's a regular amount of time? How many times a day should we pee? Yeah. So, so after potty training, so one of the things that I focus on is like potty training is really important, but what happens after potty training is actually just as important and sometimes more important. Kids are really good at prioritizing and they often have much better things to do than go to the bathroom. Yes. Um, and, and holding is very common, um, but it does, it can get you into trouble. So holding promotes stasis of urine, like urine just sitting there in the bladder. And especially for girls, you know, our urethras are short, bacteria does slip into our bladders and our job is to flush our bladders out regularly. Um, and, and same thing for kids, you know, kids should be peeing about every, you know, one to three hours is normal for a toddler. And then, you know, as you grow and your bladder capacity is more than every two to four hours is, is fine. Um, but holding past that, you know, does promote bacterial growth and bladders don't like to be over distended. Like the bladder muscle itself doesn't like to be overstretched and, um, but, you know, ignoring those signals is just like part of childhood. It does take a little bit of 
um, awareness. So like during potty training, parents are often like very on top of when their children, you know, are peeing and when they're pooping. And sometimes, you know, I see diaries during potty training. Right. Yeah. But after- write that shit down. You have a spreadsheet. You need a spreadsheet. Yes. That's yeah. the best. Right. So, but afterwards, they, we forget about it, right? And we don't really think about how often our kids are peeing. And then, you know, we're at Target and we're at, in the checkout line. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, I have to go now. Yeah. Um, and that that's like, those are the habits that I try to like work on because it can get you into trouble with urinary tract infections. So by far, the two most common risk factors for urinary tract infections in children um, are holding and constipation. So mm-hmm. I often talk about holding and constipation when I see recurrent urinary tract infections um, in, in kids. And, um, you know, holding obviously is, you know, much more like bladder related, but, you know, somewhat related to constipation. And my spiel is like, you know, two things need to happen for your bladder to empty in a healthy way. One is your bladder muscle needs to squeeze. And that's like reflexive. We don't tell our bladders to squeeze. But the second is that our pelvic floor muscles need to relax. And that is something that if kids you're constipated, really have. I see. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it affects pee and poop, right? If kids cannot relax their pelvic floor muscles, they get into the habit of holding. They sometimes have pain with urination. So like if your child has pain with urination and their urine tests are, are negative, chances are they're having like pelvic floor tightness or spasms. And um, that's where we struggle. And they're you know, shout out to all of my pediatric pelvic floor physical therapists. Like they work on that with kids who really struggle, like, you know, past sort of baseline recommendations of like pee more frequently, spread your legs when you pee, try to relax. Like they actually with, you know, some older kids work on that specifically and it really helps. So uh, somebody has a question to like very specific. Can I get a UTI from the bubble bath? Oh, so the, the, this is like, there's one paper that suggested that. Yeah. And now I answer, I that <laughs> answer this question all the time. Um, so really, you know, no, um, I, it, it's, it's more the irritation that the bubble baths cause externally that can promote like stickiness of, you know, the tissue to the bacteria. Mm-hmm. So I think if you use just gentle soap, um, it's, it's not, you know, no, um, but can you cause like some skin rashes and irritation? Yes. Yeah. But like basically skin... you don't need a bubble bath. You don't need a bubble bath is what you're telling me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like, you know, I get asked this all the time, like, oh, they're wearing their bathing suits for a long time. Like that's really not um, a cause of urinary tract infections that can cause mm. yeast infections. But yeah, yes. I think it's more like habits. It's more constipation, <laughs> peeing less frequently than you should. That's what puts kids at risk. So what? So one thing I wanted to pull in about the the sort of like frequency of the of the pee is a lot of people ask the question, you know, my kid is with the frame of like my kid has regressed, and I wonder like they used to be like perfect, and now and then you know we were potty trained and then now they're they don't know when they need to pee or they're or they're kind of peeing in in other ways, and I wonder if some of that is this kind of like you were paying so much attention and then you just stop paying attention and then they're like, they're sort of developmentally normally, they'd like rather play with their trucks than pay attention to when they need to pee. Absolutely. Um, I, I approach that problem a little differently, like at different ages, right? Like if you, if a parent comes in and their four-year-old was perfectly potty trained for, you know, eight months and then all of a sudden they regress, like totally normal. 
if a 12 year old came in and they were perfectly, you know, potty trained and started in now just started having um, accidents, I'm a little bit more um, investigative and like sure. kind of questioning what is going on by far with little ones. I focus on like, okay, let's talk about habits again and let's just sort of, you know, do a bladder diary. Let's start keeping track of things. And most of the time when I describe like, here's what a perfect urology patient looks like, let's try to mimic that for the next two to three weeks and see what happens. Most of the time parents are like, oh, we're, you know, we're good. Um, The other thing is, you know, constipation can cause decreased signals to, you know, the brain. It kind of messes up the signaling. And so if your child suffers from constipation, I would definitely like, let's treat that first and then, you know, work on habits. Um, a lot of poop in the rectum, like pushes up against the bladder, also like not not a good thing. So I talk a lot about con- constipation. I know this is not your, you're, you're not like a, a poop doctor um, specifically, um, but one of the things people ask a lot about is Miralax. So as yeah. a sort of standard treatment for constipation, and there's yeah. this sort of thing, there's like idea going around that it's poisonous, which I don't... <laughs> believe it's to not, be true, no. but I um, love your opinion. <laughs> so I think Marilac should be in the water. Like, I think it, it, yeah. Like so you're not child, in the poison camp. Okay. No, not in the poison camp. Absolutely not. I give it to my son every day, whether he's constipated or not. Um, like no pediatric urologist child is constipated. And if you need a little bit of Miralax to soften uh, your stools, uh, it's perfectly safe. So I've talked to my GI friends about this, you know, because there was, you know, one article to suggest like, neurocognitive issues and, you know, questioning the safety of Miralax. Really, it is safe. Um, It is not poisonous. And I think it is perfectly appropriate to like increase hydration and increase fiber in the diet. Like that's always the right answer Mm -hmm. to start off with, but it's okay if your, you know, child isn't drinking, you know, the perfect amount of water a day that, um, you know, you add a little bit of Miralax in their, you know, in their drinks. And it doesn't have to be like a full cap full and it can be like a teaspoon or a tablespoon. Yeah. I think the thing people sometimes miss on this, I think you see in the data is that like, if they, like once kids get constipated, then they get afraid, like then it's painful. And so, and then they get afraid. And so the feedback there is very bad. So even if you weren't going to use it like sort of for a long period of time, getting past the initial constipation is really crucial. Yes. One of the things that I like wish parents knew even prior to potty training, there are a few things, but one of them is that, you know, please do not start potty training your child if they're constipated because, Mm. you know, pain with pooping is such a strong trigger for children. And it creates like for some kids fear of going to the bathroom, Um, you know, not not wanting to poop on the toilet and, um, you know, avoiding pooping and holding in your poop. And it takes a little, it takes a while to sort of retrain and, and, and expose them enough to, to get back to, okay, like pooping can be comfortable. So again, like constipation is just a really important thing to consider. I would really aggressively treat that prior to even like you know, starting the potty training process, which is sometimes like not an obvious thing. Yeah. No. Oh, and in addition, during potty training, if your child is prone to constipation, like keep the Miralax on board or whatever you're doing for constipation, because 
I can guarantee you they're going to get constipated because this is just like a whole new, yeah, whole new thing. Um, okay, so our last question is about nighttime potty training because one, this is, as I understand it, quite different than tra- potty training uh, during the day. But there are a number of books um, about potty training which are like quite specific about the need to do nighttime potty training at the same time, um, including the book somebody had in the comments, a book, Oh Crap, says like if you don't potty train at night by whatever, three, like your child's muscles will start to atrophy. I mean, like, I I don't know which muscles, some of them probably urinary related. So what is your, what is your take on sort of nighttime potty training, same time later, do it aggressively? Yeah. So like nighttime. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I get really confused about these recommendations and I hear this all the time from parents too. Um, it's completely separate. Like it's just a completely separate box than daytime training. Your child can be perfectly, you know, potty trained during the day and still struggle with nighttime. I, you know, what I tell parents is like, you know, nighttime wetting is very common and like 20% of five-year-olds wet the bed, you know, 10% of seven-year-olds wet the bed. Um, so it is, it, it, it's something that comes later. It's not something that you can actually train. It's usually due to, it's a little bit multifactorial, but it's usually due to like slightly smaller bladder capacity. Um, maybe not, you know, having enough hormone in your system to like reduce the amount of urine that you make at night. But most of the time it's because they're just really sound sleepers. There is like a genetic, you know, component to all of this. If you have a family history of bedwetting, then you're more likely to be a bedwetter. Um, like your child is more likely to be a bedwetter. So, you know, I, I tell parents, like, I'm not really going to entertain, like, aggressively treating bedding, bedwetting until, like, seven at the minimum age. So that would be but, like, so that's where I, I want to be thinking about, like, seven, eight as kind of the... That's when the referral process starts. Yeah, that's when the referral process starts. Most pediatricians are comfortable with reassuring parents that, you know, if you have a family history, if you have these risk factors, um, then it might take a little longer. Um, But really, you know, it's perfectly appropriate to see a pediatric urologist after that point. And what, what I talk about usually is, you know, these are your options. There are medications that help with with potty training, but they're mostly band-aids, like maybe used for sleepovers and or camps. Um, and then like the, the dreaded bedwetting alarm, which is really the only thing that's been proven to sort of like nip the problem in the bud and, and get to the root of the problem, which I, I'm not excited about using like until there's some buy-in from the patient. Like the patient has to be either bothered mm-hmm. by the bedwetting um, and okay with like somebody waking them up at night. Or something waking them up at night. Um, yeah, and I, I think what's interesting about this with with kids is that like you can experience many of us had as parents is like my like my kid was in it pull up like until you know he was pretty old and yeah. and then just one day it was just like it was just like was done like one day he just was like okay now I'm like now I've kind of understood the idea of waking up and it happened two nights in a row and then it, he never like he never peed in the bed he never peed again. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, Exactly. I mean, I think eventually that, you know, arousal system, part of your brain, like gets a little bit more sensitive to your little, you know, bladder signal. I do think that there is some evidence to support like 
perfect. Think about daytime habits. So like there are things that you can't control and nighttime wedding is just like something that I tell parents, like you really can't control that. Um, but you can control daytime habits. And there is evidence to suggest that perfecting daytime habits actually like doesn't solve nighttime problems, but sets your child up for success. So yeah. if your child is holding during the day and like ignoring those signals, not purposely, but like just, again, they have better things to do than go to the bathroom then guess what? Like when they're asleep, like forget it. They're never going to respond to those signals when they're asleep. So like regular, you know, bathroom breaks during the day um, is something that, you know, can promote like that, you know, ability to respond to those signals. And constipation. Um, constipation. Um, And so they'll just to like sort of reiterate this last point, um, you know, your view is like basically if my kid's wearing a pull-up, if they're still peeing at night and I want to have them wear a pull-up until, you know, when they're five or six, that is like a totally reasonable approach to the world. Totally fine. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, you may want to consider, like a lot of parents ask me, like, when do I pull that pull-up? Mm-hmm. Like, when do I take it away? I, I would just like for the sake of, you know, t- like reducing the torture and the, the you know, laundry load, you know, I think mm-hmm. expecting at least 50% dry nights um, is reasonable, yeah. like at, at least, just yeah. so we're not, you know, going Doing through the, laundry the ups and downs. And it can be single. like really discouraging for kids, mm-hmm. you know? It depends on like how your child copes with setbacks. And if you think that they're not going to cope well, then just keep the pull-up on. It's fine. Yeah. All right. Well, I feel like we could talk for like a billion years, um, but I'm going to, I have a 30 minute Instagram live rule because of people's attention span. So I'll just say thank you so much. Yeah. Um, and we will post this and we will post the audio um, in the podcast. And so we will have all kinds of ways for people to keep listening. Thank you. Uh, thank Thanks you so much. Thank me. you, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Parent Data in your favorite podcast app and rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe to the whole newsletter for free at www.parentdata.org. Talk to you soon.